So I would say, obviously, Christ is the greatest man that ever lived. But do you know who the second is? It would have been me had I done everything I had started out. If I completed everything I ever did, I would be the second greatest man that ever lived. I guarantee you, I would be a master piano player. I would, I would have mastered the guitar, poetry, books, uh, acting, music. I mean, I just would have done it all. I, everything I started, the, the, the photography business I started when I was in college, like, I would be a National Geographic photographer. I mean, I would be, you would be, honestly, it, it would be a benefit to you just to know me if I completed everything I ever started. And do you know what the difference is between that excellent version and me? It's about 90 days. Research shows that if you want to start a new habit, you must keep it up for 90 days. And at that point, you no longer need the external structures that you are setting up. So let's say you want to start something new, yet it has to be on the calendar, has to have a reminder. Maybe someone texts you, calls you, hey, don't forget to do your thing. Uh, if you do that for 90 days, the research shows that it becomes internalized and it becomes like all those other habits we have. You don't set an alarm on your phone to take a shower this week. Uh, you, don't set, you don't have to be reminded and have external structures to remind you to eat, watch TV, check your Facebook, uh, check email. These things are habits. We do them habitually. They come straight out of us. Um, and that's how they work. It, it's not the, the grandness that we start out with, the excitement that we start out with that will make us in, integrate something for it to become part of who we are. It's really just consistency. Now, I'll tell you this, if you've come to this church for a few years, let's say since 2021, you may have noticed that, that I have lost some weight. Um, the number is 100, by the way. I lost 100 pounds since 2021. Um, I know, I hit it well, don't I? I knew how to dress, and anyway. But no, I did, seriously. And I went, before, you always have those experiences. There's that guy who's in great shape, eating really well. And he's like, oh, I had a heart attack. They almost lost me on the table. And when I came to, I looked my wife in the eyes and I said, I need to be different. And before, I kid you not, I'd always think, oh, so lucky. I wish I, wish I had a near-death experience that would make it easy. It's easy for him now. He's terrified. He's not going to eat that garbage anymore. He's not going to do all the things. He's eating the way that I wish I, I would did. And he's, he's doing the things that I wish I could. And it's easy for him because he had this grand moment that he had this uh, awakening. And not to say that you don't have wake-up calls. I mean, really, there's a point, honestly, I, I, I never, this is, I, I've been avoiding the topic of weight loss, hoping that none of you would notice for years, because there's a point where it sounds, it sounds like you're proud of it. I lost 20 pounds. You get up to 100, and all you're thinking is like, they're probably wondering, what the heck did he do to get himself 100 pounds overweight? Um, and I can tell you, getting there, there's a lot of wake-up calls. Doctor's appointments that didn't go the way you wanted. And times that you got sore and couldn't keep up with playing with your kids. I mean, there's just things that happen that could be wake-up calls. And really, I, I, I kept waiting for that grand wake-up call. And there came a point that I started reading books about habits and habit-forming and, and the power of permanence. And yeah, it's honestly, we're the sum of our habits, aren't we? You know, it's nothing big, it's nothing huge, it's just different habits over time yield these different results as it really becomes part of who we are. What really makes us different is how we live it over time. And I was thinking about this with spiritual awakening moments. 
or we, we go to a small group, we read a book, we go to a, a retreat, or um, just a moment of enlightenment, or something that happens at church, baptism, whatever it is, and when there's this spiritual awakening moment, and we feel this burden, like, that should be it. That was my, that's my wake-up call, that's my awakening, and it's big enough, and I'll carry it forward. Have you ever had a big awakening, and you disappoint yourself with how it faded away? And it didn't become part of your life in perpetuity. We disappoint ourselves, don't we? And the fact is, is that we're not alone. Uh, we've been on a series looking at the life of the Apostle Paul, or not, excuse me, Paul, Peter. Peter is one who has so many stories written about him because he was the fail-forward apostle. I mean, if there's really a thing we know Peter for, that's, that's what he did. He failed forward. And Peter had awakenings, and they took him a while to build into his life as well. And I want to encourage you that the spiritual awakening that you had, the, the word of God, the, the, the mighty thing that was done, it's still here, it's still within you. And like a habit, we need to remain in it until it's integral, until it's part of who we are. And you can't separate uh, your own behavior from the way God has changed you and, and how it becomes a core of who we are. Then we can live it out without a struggle, and we can remain... Uh, uh, in it without the need of that constant reminder. I want to read something that was a huge change for, for Peter today, and then we're going to read about how he carries it on for a long amount of time. So we're going to go to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 10. This is Peter's vision, and it's a, it's a really critical historical moment for the church. We'll get into it in a bit. But it starts out this way. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up to a rooftop to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance, and he saw uh, heaven opened up, and something like a large sheet let down to the earth by its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed creatures and animals, uh, as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice called to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, replied Peter. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure uh, that God has made clean. This is a huge moment because it's, it, this is, uh, it's referring to, if you're not familiar with Jewish dietary laws, Jewish dietary laws were probably the most consistent, everyday reminder, we are not like the Gentiles, we're different. And that was the point of it. it. It was invasive. It was something that you couldn't just uh, cut a few things out. Kosher eating cuts a lot of things out. It cuts out boar and all kinds of things that people ate in the area. And um, it set them apart as who they were. And critically, it, dro it drove this line in between. This is what Gentiles eat. This is what Jews eat. If you're not familiar with the term Gentiles, it's anyone who's not an Israelite. Anyone from outside of that is a Gentile. These changes, this idea of God coming down and giving Peter this vision that it's time to eat everything is this time of integration calling for Jews and Gentiles to come together because eating meals together is critical. It means something about bringing community together, and it was symbolic. To a Jew, eating Gentile food and being among Gentiles meant completely combining with them, and that, this is an enormous uh, vision to have. Jews would not eat with Gentiles. They would not marry Gentiles because mixing uh, at all meant mixing values and beliefs, and God himself told them not to do it. This isn't some human aberration like God told them. 
that you must remain separate. You are not to marry your daughters to their sons, your sons to their daughters, and you are not to eat their food. And this revelation is new because it shows that this mix was meant to be temporary. That there would come a time that like crutches on someone healing up or building up that this, this group of once illiterate slaves being brought out of Egypt would be brought in, made a community, made pure, made clean, have a strong culture developed among them so that one day when the Messiah comes and their kingdom begins to spread, those laws can be lifted up and they could integrate with Gentiles in a way they never did before. That there would come a time that Jews and Gentiles would be made into one community in those ancient roots. You are now part of that community. Paul describes this this uh, change in, in relationship with, with God, his kingdom, and Israel, and people on the outside as like branches being grafted into a tree, that they would put a different branch from another tree into it, meaning that even if you are not ethnically a Jew, when you read the Old Testament, if Christ is your savior, if you're part of this kingdom, that becomes your heritage. That becomes your history and part of who uh, you're part of. But such revelations uh, breaking the status quo of of centuries was really shocking. Such an idea would have made Jews uneasy. In fact, in the original language, Peter reacts in this way of revolt and disgust when the sheet is let down. Because to us, pork is is a totally fine meat, delicious. We even would crave it. To them, it might as well have been a cockroach. I mean, think about the cultural ways that we eat and people from other cultures and how repulsed we can be by their food. I love watching travel shows, and I've seen in uh, particularly the Canton area of China, they have fermented foods that actually are fermented, and the whole appeal is actually not the taste. Even the locals are like, oh, it tastes bad. Fermented shark, it tastes horrible. Fermented eggs, like it's an egg that's buried and rotten, and they call it a 100-year-old egg. The egg yolk is like turns dark green. The outside is clear, uh, and it's the most pungent, disgusting thing you'll ever put in your mouth. It's all about texture. So this culture that's very different than mine enjoys this, and you watch these people from travel shows, they'll eat anything. They're eating, they're eating brains. They're eating all kinds of stuff all over the world. They get to Hong Kong, and it taps every American out I've ever seen. They can't do it. There's this show, uh, Somebody Feed Phil, and he ate one of those. Anybody watch Somebody Feed Phil? He's so funny. He ate one of those eggs, and he said he infamously refers to that day as egg night. It was just, it stuck with him. And actually, I've read that Asians feel that way about cheese, which I get now that I think about it, like it is, it is spoiled milk, <laughs> is it not? Like, we're like it, we describe the flavors, it, it's sharp. Is it sharp or is that just the pungent taste of spoiled milk? <laughs> and I, so I get it, I get it how, how gross that sounds, but at the same time, you give me a wheel of brie, apples, chutney, and crackers, I'm going to dig in. Because that's just, we, we eat things that disgust each other, and there is a sense of food disgust happening here. Lizards, reptiles, things crawling, you being told, kill and eat. It's repulsive, and it's repulsive to someone who is notably hungry. It's in the story, he's hungry. We'll eat anything when we're hungry. And so there's this, I, there's this repulsion that, that is very important to understand because that's how we can feel about people in ways that are outside of our own. And this is the tension that Jews felt when Gentiles came into the church. It was difficult for them, down to the little things, the way they dressed, the way their hair was, the, the kind of jokes they thought was funny. It was, it was a point of tension, and the food they ate was a huge part of this. But 
Like we can feel about fermented eggs, people can be repulsed at times by people who are foreign. And that disgust can attach itself to people. And so what we find is that at this point, a measure put in God, put in by God to maintain a community and keep it pure has over time, by men getting their hands on it, has become a barrier that's harbored racism. It's become a real race problem, and it's a fire the Lord wants to put out, and he puts it out first with, our, with the apostle we've been studying, with Peter. He has this amazing experience. I thought about reading it. It's way too long. Let me sum up. Uh, in the words of Indigo from Princess Bride, let me sum up. A centurion and God-fearing man, <clears throat> the meaning God-fearing man basically means he's a Jewish proselyte. So he's a Roman who, who believes in the God of Israel. Um, how far he's gone into proselytization, we don't know. This would have gone through things like confirmation, circumcision. Uh, he would have been inspected, checked. There's a whole process to it. And we don't know how far he went into it, but no, he, to some degree he was on that road. An angel comes to him. He has an angelic visitation, and the angel says, go find Peter. I have a message that he needs to tell you. And so it's very clear. These three men arrive at, at the home that Peter's at looking for him, saying, we've been sent to come get you. It's a multi-day journey. Are you ready to go? And it's very clear that the vision Peter just got was about these three men and going with them into their, into their home and going where they came from. And so the Spirit tells Peter in the moment, Peter, don't be afraid. Leave right now and go with them. And so he does. Upon arrival, he finds the centurion assembled everybody he knew, his friends, his families. The place is packed. And this is a centurion's home. It would have had a huge court. You could have really packed it out. It says all his friends and family are there to all hear what he has to say. And they're all so eager to hear the message, this message that will be said uh, in his home. And so uh, to give you an idea of... Uh, what this looks like. Someone put together this great infograph. This, like, after he meets with him, this is, this is the rest of the New Testament right here. Um, it's more descriptive than you think, really. Um, this, this gathering shows these eager, eager Gentiles who want to hear this message from God, and they gather anxiously to hear it. The time of the Gentiles has come, the calling of likely your people. Because I know, personally, I have a little bit of Jewish heritage. It's very small, and by all means and accounts, the culture I was raised in everything, I am completely and totally a Gentile, too. This is the calling of our people for Gentiles this moment, in this house, with this man, in Cornelius' home, that's the name of the centurion. This is our Mount Sinai. This is this moment when the calling is going to begin to rupture out. This is, this is beyond just a few proselytes that join. There are always a couple people that might have converted here or there. This is a huge calling. The kingdom of God has come for you. This is the calling of everyone from, from Romans to French, British, Chinese, Ethiopian, Pacific Islanders. This is the calling that will go out to the world that will define what is ahead. So Peter says, yes, let's read a little bit more of the story. So now that I've summed up, I've saved you all some time. We're going to pick up again in verse 34, which in my Bible is conveniently the next page. Uh, then Peter began to speak. So this is after he's uh, confronted with just how many people are there. <clears throat> I now realize how true it is that God, has, uh, that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. 
You know the message uh, that God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout all the provinces of Judea, beginning in Galilee and after the baptism that John had preached, and how God had appointed Jesus of Nazareth with a Holy Spirit and power, and how he had uh, went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. Uh, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead and on the third day, uh, or <clears throat> excuse me, raised him on the third day and caused him to be seen. And he was not seen by all uh, the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he had rose uh, from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge uh, of the living and of the dead. And all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of their sin, uh, excuse me, forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. <clears throat> the circumcised believers who had uh, come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. There's this moment that Peter has to see. God sent him with a vision. He went there to go speak before he could even finish telling them the gospel. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, which is actually which is theologically backwards in Bible college. You go, you get saved, and then you get filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, apparently, that can happen backwards whenever God wants to. They get filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues, and he realizes God has selected them, chosen them, filled them, and he has the revelation that at the time of the Gentiles has come. Peter realizes he's caught up in cataclysmic events so far beyond himself, and he was able to say yes. He can be the witness of what happened in Cornelius' house. What he saw on the rooftop, he knows uh, what the Lord has done. He is the expert witness in this case. From this time on, it begins this era of the Gentiles, because you see Peter returns back to Jerusalem and tells them what he sees. All the leaders of the church come together, and they have to make a tough decision. They, it's the first time that the church is called together for a council. We've had a few, but this is the first one called the Council of Jerusalem. And the decision was, do non-Jewish people have to convert to Judaism, go through all the rites and rituals, then accept Christ? Or are all the rites and rituals fulfilled in, in Christ and no longer apply to Jews or Gentiles and they can just come straight in? And that's what this found. It's a profound counsel. And Peter is the expert witness who saw all of these things. He's the one that brought it to them, who testified and saw it get passed. It creates a huge difference because the church is, becomes, as that silly video shows, rapidly mostly Gentile. It, within the Bible, it becomes mostly Gentile. Today, it's overwhelmingly Gentile, and I, I don't mean that as a criticism to, to the Jewish people. We know that, yes, they haven't accepted Christ as a whole, but I don't mean that as a criticism because that's the way it would go anyway, isn't it? We Gentiles outnumber, all of us put together would outnumber one race quite a bit. And so while Jews are uh, numerous and there's, there, there's a lot of them, there's a lot more of all of the rest of us. Therefore, the kingdom of God is going to be made up of a lot of people that are foreign to Israel, or at least once foreign. 
Peter is this voice in this change. This is his message. It's it's his thing he brings to them. It didn't come from Paul. It didn't come from John. It doesn't come from James. It comes from Peter. And yet we find uh, old habits really die hard. Because prejudice, elitism, wanting to fit in with certain people and certain crowds is difficult. There is a backsliding that happens to him. For this story, we're going to turn to the book of Galatians. If you're not familiar with the book of Galatians, the, the context is really very simple. Paul went to the land of Galatia. It was very Gentile. He planted many churches there. This takes place after the Jerusalem Council. They're witnessing to Gentiles. Gentiles' churches are exploding all over the place. He plants them. He leaves, but there was a group of believers that did not like the Jerusalem Council and stood against it. Paul called them the party of the circumcision. They demanded that that people would go through all the rites and be proselytized, be circumcised, then be saved. They come in behind him. And they've gone and they've spread all of these teachings. They're actually said to have been incredibly articulate, amazing teachers, and they wowed people. They were very gifted. And they were very gifted at teaching people to go against the the decision of the Council of Jerusalem. And they convinced all of these Galatians that they needed to get circumcised, that they needed to go through the rites. And when this news reaches Paul, he pens, I would say, a rather angry letter. He he was a passionate dude. And so he writes them to rebuke the party of the circumcision for going against the decisions of the council and uh, their teachings. And so he's going to start this story. He's going to tell a story of someone who uh, opposed the, the findings of the council, goes against it, continues to favor separation of Jews and Gentiles, and how foolish their argument was. His example is Peter, the specialist. He's the bad example. And so we're going to flip... I should have done this while I was talking to you all, because now it's going to take me forever to get here. Little ki- the little uh, trick is, is that after Corinthians, if you forget what's coming after, giants eat peas and carrots. So it's, that's how you remember. <laughs> Galatians, Ephesians, so on. I'm serious. It works. doesn't matter how long you've been a pastor, how long you went to Bible college. Giants eat peas and carrots. Gets it done every time. All right. On to Paul's story. <clears throat> Do I have this right? I feel like I wrote my reference down wrong. Should I just read it from there? All right, let's read it from there. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I'm telling you, Paul's intense. That's, that's one heck of a way to start a story. Because I've been reading the writings of Peter for this series. I've been reading the writings of John for my own personal study. They're so kind. They're so nice. They're so warm. They're like the moms of the church. Uh, this is dad. Um, and he's... <laughs> He is severe. So, uh, yeah, that's how he starts his story. Let's see if it gets easier. Because he stood condemned. No, let's continue. But before, uh, it says, for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the group of the circumcision. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of all of them, so this is not pulling him aside. This is in the middle of the dinner party. You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? 
Uh, we who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentile and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ so that we may be justified in faith, uh, excuse me, by faith in Jesus and not by works of the law because the works of the law, uh, no one will be justified. That's it, right? Okay. Should have written it down better in my notes. He's being shamed publicly. And a thing to understand, and it's more to go into than we can today, in a society like this, it's called collectivism. And shaming someone publicly wasn't about embarrassing them. It was actually about reconciling them to the group. So let's say that you have someone you're very close to. And, and a perfect picture, we do this today with, with um, interventions. You know, I've never been part of one. I hope I never have to be. Sounds awkward. But you trick somebody into showing up and all their friends and family are there and they all tell them how the addiction that they're going through is impacting all of them. It's not to hurt them. Those people that in that, in that circle aren't there to, to do damage. They actually want to bring them back. They feel like they've strayed and that's how shame is used in this culture. So when he's being shamed, he's being brought back. He's beginning to create separation. Everybody's watching Peter. He's the whole Jerusalem council guy. He was the expert witness with him drawing away with him starting to not sit with Gentiles made to where all the rest followed him. And so Paul, as aggressive as he is, is trying to bring reconciliation because Peter strayed away from this grand awakening he had, and it was embarrassing. He saw a vision from heaven. He heard a voice of God. He watched the miracle of the spirit of the bapt- or baptism spirit and the, by the Gentiles. He saw them get saved. He watched the Jerusalem council agree with his findings. And now he's at a dinner party getting a very long speech told to him uh, in the middle of his hypocrisy. Peter had an awakening, but he just needed to live it out. It takes some time of habitually living out the things God said. This is, the, this is the biggest awakening. I've never had anything like that. I could tell you, I've never had a trance. It never happened to me. I've never had a vision where, where, where things come down and, and I'm told that I'm supposed to do something that's going to impact the kingdom of God forever. Not happened. He can have a vision that big. He can have an awakening that great, a start, a, a wake-up call that grandiose, and it's still possible to fade away from it when we don't habitually live it. And I really think that's why Paul is the stronger witness in this, because Paul's job, he tells the people that he writes to, I feel that I was called to get as many Gentiles to follow Jesus as possible so that the Jews would grow in their envy of what they see the Gentiles have and would be saved. He had this idea that he was, he was ministering to Jews by speaking to the Gentiles who had their mouth wide open for the gospel. And so as he's planting these churches, as he's with them all the time, even though Paul was probably at that council, maybe he heard about it, but he wasn't the one that witnessed it. He is the one who is changed by the decision the most because he habitually lived it. And Peter didn't habitually live it as much. He didn't have to. Peter needed to be course corrected. And that was Paul's goal with him to remain in that truth a little longer, to keep returning, to keep coming back, to be restored to the group so that like a habit, what God started in Peter could take root in him and he would be changed forever. Just like we need such similar things. Backsliding may come, but if we stay at it, we stay with it, we remain with Christ, that change really does take root in us. 
I want you to read something. This is how Peter wrote publicly to Gentiles towards the end of his life when he was an older man. One of the last things he wrote to them was this. But you, and he's talking to Gentiles. Hear how much this sounds like he's speaking in terms of Israel. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I think it's very clear to see that though it didn't happen easily, didn't happen quickly, and the grandiose beginning of the vision wasn't what changed Peter, he did change eventually, and it was through habitually being with Gentiles, being around them, and keeping this up. Maybe it was 90 days, I don't know. But he certainly has changed at the end of it. The pressures of this world are the thing that got to Peter. And when we we have these moments, we feel like God's calling us to be changed. We get excited for something the Lord is doing. And usually what just Japanese water trip, have you ever heard that torture where they drop water on your head over and over again until you lose it? Um, It's like parenting small children. Uh, This erosion of, of normal life coming at us, the pressures of this world are usually the thing that pushes back. And like Peter, it often comes in the form of people. For Peter, he saw people that, that he once w- really wanted their praise and approval. They were, they were high-ranking, uh, high-class people, and it was, it was a thing that he wanted deep in his heart to please them his whole life, and he found himself giving into something that at one point, at least after the council, he would have thought he would have never done again. These pressures are going to come, but my encouragement to you is, Don't give up on the fruit of your awakening. Don't give up on that promise. Realize that sometimes you need Christian friends, maybe even an aggressive Paul friend, who's going to oppose you to your face. Hopefully privately. You know, maybe maybe he'll get you aside. I'm guessing he called Peter out publicly because his uh, transgression was rather public, but still. Sometimes we need reminders. We need things to, to hold us up to stay in it. But don't give up on the fruit of your awakening. Stay at it. And don't be discouraged just because it's counterintuitive to you at first. When God starts something new, that's new to you. You're going to fumble with it more now than you will later on. It's going to be more difficult right now. And God might be calling you to be the person who, who dispenses peace, though all you have is anxiety inside. And God might be telling you to be the person who can have mercy for certain people, but all you feel is judgment. And it can be very hard to follow these things and to, to follow the spirit of God into new things and new areas of life. But you will get better at it with time if you remain in it with him. If you remain in Christ and you remain at the work, you remain at what he's doing, it will change because the Lord plants and he brings to completion everything he planted. Or as Paul said at the end of his letter to Galatians, he says this, let us not become weary of doing good for at the proper time we will reap the harvest if we do not give up. Do not grow weary of doing good. We can be disappointed just like Peter. If it happened to Peter and he could still write things like that at the end of his life, if he could still change, so can we. There are things that God put in your life, and just because it's so hard to live it, just because you've let yourself down again and again and again, does not mean that that seed, that root, that thing God did in you is gone, that it's erased. Remain in it and let your your spirit habitually pick it up until it becomes a thing that is just part of you, deeply integrated with who you are. I want to pray for us before we go. 
as we take in this truth, that we would think about those things. I want you to think about the things in your life you feel that you felt conviction about, you felt encouragement about, you felt the Lord start something new. And anxiety has seeped in and you're worried that you can hang on to it with all the changing things and pressure has come in and you face disappointment. Those are the things we pray about today. Lord, I, I thank you so much that you plant good things. I thank you for moments like this that we can be encouraged that it's much harder to uproot something you planted than we realize. That just as Peter could, could so seemingly have, have failed and he could feel like he failed everything and screwed up in front of everybody and embarrassed himself and something he once was supposed to be a witness of, he is now a witness against. Somehow, Lord, throughout his life, as he continually lived out the truth of what you called him to do, how to set aside racial prejudice and to set aside the desire to please people, that he could come to a place that we find later in life he was changed and he did integrate it. So many times you do things and we get uh, worn down and we feel we're living as if nothing happened. Lord, I pray that we could be reminded that things have happened. Lord, I pray that we could find ways to remain in you, that our, our rhythm of life would get closer to you, nearer to you. As we look at Peter, the, the greatest thing that he could have ever done was to remain with his believing friends and to remain in the spirit of God, to spend his time in prayer because through repetition in that man's life, you took someone who was a fisherman and you made him an apostle and you took someone who was an apostle and you made him a father to the church and someone who loved everybody he came across without prejudice in his heart. Lord, the progression you take us through, God, we have faith that you can lead us through it. That though we struggle with it now, that we can't quite get it down quite yet and we keep falling apart with it, you bring everything to fruition. We thank you for the change you bring to our lives and let us get back into a rhythm of being in your presence and living that truth every day. Inspire us as to how we can structure our lives to build a habit of the kingdom within us. In your name we pray, amen.